Chapter Twelve of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Twelve Ill Luck. A Canadian came from Fort Laramie and brought a curious piece of intelligence. A trapper fresh from the mountains had become enamored of a Missouri damsel belonging to a family who, with other emigrants, had been for some days encamped in the neighborhood of the fort. If bravery be the most potent charm to win the favor of the fair, then no wooer could be more irresistible than a Rocky Mountain trapper. In the present instance, the suit was not urged in vain. The lovers concerted a scheme which they proceeded to carry into effect with all possible dispatch. The emigrant party left the fort, and on the next succeeding night but one encamped as usual and placed a guard. A little after midnight, the enamored trapper drew near, mounted on a strong horse, and leading another by the bridle. Fastening both animals to a tree, he stealthily moved toward the wagons, as if he were approaching a band of buffalo. Eluding the vigilance of the guard, who was probably half asleep, he met his mistress by appointment at the outskirts of the camp, mounted her on his spare horse, and made off with her through the darkness. The sequel of the adventure did not reach our ears, and we never learned how the imprudent fair one liked an Indian lodge for a dwelling, and a reckless trapper for a bridegroom. At length the whirlwind and his warriors determined to move. They had resolved, after all their preparations, not to go to the rendezvous at La Bonte's camp, but to pass through the Black Hills and spend a few weeks in hunting the buffalo on the other side until they had killed enough to furnish them with a stock of provisions and with hides to make their lodges for the next season. This done, they were to send out a small independent war party against the enemy. Their final determination left us in some embarrassment. Should we go to La Bonte's camp, it was not impossible that the other villages would prove as vacillating and indecisive as the whirlwinds, and that no assembly whatever would take place. Our old companion Reynal had conceived a liking for us, or rather for our biscuit and coffee, and for the occasional small presents which we made him. He was very anxious that we should go with the village which he himself intended to accompany. He declared he was certain that no Indians would meet at the rendezvous, and said, moreover, that it would be easy to convey our cart and baggage through the Black Hills. In saying this, he told, as usual, an egregious falsehood. Neither he nor any white man with us had ever seen the difficult and obscure defiles through which the Indians intended to make their way. I passed them afterward and had much ado to force my distressed horse along the narrow ravines and through chasms where daylight could scarcely penetrate. Our cart might as easily have been conveyed over the summit of Pike's Peak. Anticipating the difficulties and uncertainties of an attempt to visit the rendezvous, we recalled the old proverb about a bird in the hand and decided to follow the village. Both camps, the Indians and our own, broke up on the morning of the 1st of July. I was so weak that the aid of a potent auxiliary, a spoonful of whiskey swallowed at short intervals, alone enabled me to sit on my hardy little mare Pauline through the short journey of that day. For half a mile before us and half a mile behind, the prairie was covered far and wide with the moving throng of savages. 
the barren, broken plain stretched away to the right and left, and far in front rose the gloomy, precipitous ridge of the Black Hills. We pushed forward to the head of the scattered column, passing the burdened travaux, the heavily laden pack-horses, the gaunt old women on foot, the gay young squaws on horseback, the restless children running among the crowd, old men striding along in their white buffalo robes, and groups of young warriors mounted on their best horses. Henry Chatillon, looking backward over the distant prairie, exclaimed suddenly that a horseman was approaching, and in truth we could just discern a small black speck slowly moving over the face of a distant swell, like a fly creeping on a wall. It rapidly grew larger as it approached. "'White man, I believe,' said Henry. "'Look how he ride. Indian never ride that way. Yes, he got rifle on the saddle before him.' The horseman disappeared in a hollow of the prairie, but we soon saw him again, and as he came riding at a gallop toward us through the crowd of Indians, his long hair streaming in the wind behind him, we recognized the ruddy face and old buckskin frock of Jean Gras, the trapper. He was just arrived from Fort Laramie, where he had been on a visit, and he said he had a message for us. A trader named Bissonnette, one of Henry's friends, was lately come from the settlements, and intended to go with a party of men to La Bonte's camp, where, as Jean Gras assured us, ten or twelve villages of Indians would certainly assemble. Bissonnette desired that we would cross over and meet him there, and promised that his men should protect our horses and baggage while we went among the Indians. Shaw and I stopped our horses and held a council, and in an evil hour resolved to go. For the rest of that day's journey our course and that of the Indians was the same. In less than an hour we came to where the high barren prairie terminated, sinking down abruptly in steep descent, and standing on these heights we saw below us a great level meadow. Laramie Creek bounded it on the left, sweeping along in the shadow of the declivities, and passing with its shallow and rapid current just below us. We sat on horseback, waiting and looking on, while the whole savage array went pouring past us, hurrying down the descent, and spreading themselves over the meadow below. In a few moments the plain was swarming with the moving multitude, some just visible like specks in the distance, others still passing on, pressing down, and fording the stream with bustle and confusion. On the edge of the heights sat half a dozen of the elder warriors, gravely smoking, and looking down with unmoved faces on the wild and striking spectacle. Up went the lodges in a circle on the margin of the stream. For the sake of quiet, we pitched our tent among some trees at half a mile's distance. In the afternoon, we were in the village. The day was a glorious one, and the whole camp seemed lively and animated in sympathy. Groups of children and young girls were laughing gaily on the outside of the lodges, the shields, the lances, and the bows were removed from the tall tripods on which they usually hung before the dwellings of their owners. The warriors were mounting their horses, and one by one, riding away over the prairie toward the neighboring hills. Shaw and I sat on the grass near the lodge of Reynal. An old woman with true Indian hospitality brought a bowl of boiled venison and placed it before us. We amused ourselves with watching half a dozen young squaws who were playing together and chasing each other in and out of one of the lodges. 
Suddenly the wild yell of the war-whoop came pealing from the hills. A crowd of horsemen appeared, rushing down their sides and riding at full speed toward the village, each warrior's long hair flying behind him in the wind like a ship's streamer. As they approached, the confused throng assumed a regular order, and entering two by two, they circled round the area at full gallop, each warrior singing his war-song as he rode. Some of their dresses were splendid. They wore superb crests of feathers and close tunics of antelope skins, fringed with the scalp-locks of their enemies. Their shields, too, were often fluttering with the war-eagle's feathers. All had bows and arrows at their back. Some carried long lances, and a few were armed with guns. The white shield, their partisan, rode in gorgeous attire at their head, mounted on a black-and-white horse. Matto Tatanka and his brothers took no part in this parade, for they were in mourning for their sister, and were all sitting in their lodges, their bodies bedabbed from head to foot with white clay, and a lock of hair cut from each of their foreheads. The warriors circled three times round the village, and as each distinguished champion passed, the old women would scream out his name, in honor of his bravery, and to incite the emulation of the younger warriors. Little urchins not two years old followed the warlike pageant with glittering eyes, and looked with eager wonder and admiration at those whose honors were proclaimed by the public voice of the village. Thus early is the lesson of war instilled into the mind of an Indian, and such are the stimulants which incite his thirst for martial renown. The procession rode out of the village as it had entered it, and in half an hour all the warriors had returned again, dropping quietly in singly or in parties of two or three. As the sun rose next morning, we looked across the meadow, and could see the lodges leveled and the Indians gathering together in preparation to leave the camp. Their course lay to the westward. We turned toward the north with our men, the four trappers following us, with the Indian family of Moran. We traveled until night. I suffered not a little from pain and weakness. We encamped among some trees by the side of a little brook, and here, during the whole of the next day, we lay waiting for Bissonnette, but no Bissonnette appeared. Here also two of our trapper friends left us and set out for the Rocky Mountains. On the second morning, despairing of Bissonnette's arrival, we resumed our journey, traversing a forlorn and dreary monotony of sun-scorched plains, where no living thing appeared save here and there an antelope flying before us like the wind. When noon came, we saw an unwanted and most welcome sight, a rich and luxuriant growth of trees marking the course of a little stream called Horseshoe Creek. We turned gladly toward it. There were lofty and spreading trees standing widely asunder and supporting a thick canopy of leaves above a surface of rich, tall grass. The stream ran swiftly as clear as crystal through the bosom of the wood, sparkling over its bed of white sand and darkening again as it entered a deep cavern of leaves and boughs. I was thoroughly exhausted and flung myself on the ground, scarcely able to move. All that afternoon I lay in the shade by the side of the stream, and those bright woods and sparkling waters are associated in my mind with recollections of lassitude and utter prostration. When night came I sat down by the fire, longing with an intensity of which at this moment I can hardly conceive for some powerful stimulant. 
In the morning, as glorious a sun rose upon us as ever animated that desolate wilderness, we advanced and soon were surrounded by tall bare hills, overspread from top to bottom with prickly pears and other cacti that seemed like clinging reptiles. A plain, flat and hard, and with scarcely the vestige of grass lay before us, and a line of tall misshapen trees bounded the onward view. There was no sight or sound of man or beast or any living thing, although behind those trees was the long-looked-for place of rendezvous where we fondly hoped to have found the Indians congregated by thousands. We looked and listened anxiously. We pushed forward with our best speed and forced our horses through the trees. There were copses of some extent beyond, with a scanty stream creeping through their midst, and as we pressed through the yielding branches, deer sprang up to the right and left. At length we caught a glimpse of the prairie beyond. Soon we emerged upon it, and saw not a plain covered with encampments and swarming with life, but a vast unbroken desert stretching away before us, league upon league, without a bush or a tree or anything that had life. We drew rein, and gave to the winds our sentiments concerning the whole aboriginal race of America. Our journey was in vain, and much worse than in vain. For myself, I was vexed and disappointed beyond measure, as I well knew that a slight aggravation of my disorder would render this false step irrevocable, and make it quite impossible to accomplish effectively the design which had led me an arduous journey of between three and four thousand miles. To fortify myself as well as I could against such a contingency, I resolved that I would not under any circumstances attempt to leave the country until my object was completely gained. And where were the Indians? They were assembled in great numbers at a spot about twenty miles distant, and there at that very moment they were engaged in their warlike ceremonies. The scarcity of buffalo in the vicinity of Labonte's camp, which would render their supply of provisions scanty and precarious, had probably prevented them from assembling there. But of all this we knew nothing until some weeks after. Shaw lashed his horse and galloped forward. I, though much more vexed than he, was not strong enough to adopt this convenient vent to my feelings, so I followed at a quiet pace, but in no quiet mood. We rode up to a solitary old tree, which seemed the only place fit for encampment. Half its branches were dead, and the rest were so scantily furnished with leaves that they cast but a meager and wretched shade, and the old twisted trunk alone furnished sufficient protection from the sun. We threw down our saddles in the strip of shadow that it cast and sat down upon them. In silent indignation we remained smoking for an hour or more, shifting our saddles with the shifting shadow, for the sun was intolerably hot. End of chapter 12